Hello and welcome to Canucks Talk on Sportsnet 650. I'm Thomas Drance and I'm joined in an athletic takeover day on Canucks Talk by my co-host Harmon Dial today. Harmon, how are you? I'm doing great. I was literally going to say athletic takeover in those exact same words. Hive mind. You literally, you read my mind. So, so. so people might not know this, but we work together so closely and we collaborate so often that we literally can finish each other's... Sentences. <laughs> Sandwiches. Um, so <laughs> it's going to be fun. We can give our audience a glimpse at the Dial Drance hive mind today. But first, let's pay the bills. Canucks Talk is brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota all-star team. Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca or douglaslakeequipment.com for more info. Of course, we are coming to you live from the Kintech studio, Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. And today, our producer, Lena, is going to be chiming in as we go and pouring over your input in the 650-650 Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, Dunbar Lumber, of course, has three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street, or Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver. Visit them online at DunbarLumber.com. So that's 650-650. Get your thoughts in after a Canucks game that can only be described as boring, dull, tedious. It was a miserable game to watch, but Vancouver didn't just win, Harmon. They control play. Like, they were unfortunate that overtime was required. You'd expect Vancouver to be significantly better than the moribund Anaheim Ducks, but man, they were so much better than the moribund Anaheim Ducks. And so often this team, even if they've won these types of games against the teams they should beat, they've at least made it way more exciting than it should be, right? Yesterday went to overtime, so I guess you could say it was close, but it wasn't really. Yeah, especially you mentioned some of those games earlier in the season under Boudreaux where they'd play teams like San Jose, Arizona, Montreal, and... 7-6 with a comeback after falling behind 3-0 in the first. Like, it was wild. Exactly. And so this game, they had way more control, way more Mm. offensive zone time, very few defensive breakdowns. And honestly, it was Lucas Dostal kind of standing on um, standing his head that kept the Ducks in it enough to, to push OT before JT Miller just sort of ended it all with a perfect shot. Called game. It was a beautiful shot, a lovely rush. But Troy Terry, like, I think Troy Terry is still wandering out somewhere on Canby Street, just like <laughs> completely lost based on his defensive zone coverage in that three on three. Do you take anything meaningful? from the fact that this team could play a quiet game? Or is it one of those things where we'll have to see because these games matter so little? And let's be honest. It was a little bit of a passionless affair. A bloodless game, I would say, between two teams that kind of know the score. True, although you could say that Monday against Nashville was kind of the opposite, where Mm. it was a pretty emotional, sort of physical, chippy kind of game, and the Canucks performed well in... um, in that sort of environment as well. And overall, I think they've maintained that level of intensity. Honestly, when you look at how boring that game was, I think that it has way more to do with how bad the Ducks are, where 
they were so dull trying to break the puck out of the zone. They were so dull in transition. They were so dull in the offensive zone. Very little creativity. Zegers barely popped. I know Terry had the goal, but even at the top end of their lineup, Anaheim didn't have anything going. And the Canucks, they had a lot of the zone time. But even when you look at their top players, it was it was like there were it was it felt as if they were one pass or one play away from really connecting on the sort of home run plays that would really get them in on the inside. So I I I step away from that wondering just how how much of the lack of entertainment w- was just more on the Ducks' part rather than the Canucks. But when you mentioned in terms of how much of a positive do you take in terms of being able to play low event hockey, I think it's definitely a step in the right direction. But the one caveat that I have in all of this, right, whatever happens down the stretch is, to me, they have to prove that they can do it in high leverage pressure games. Because we kind of saw last year where as soon as they're effectively kind of out of the playoff race, where it's an extreme long shot, nobody's expecting anything out of them. That's when they were really able to rally and find their game, start competing on a consistent basis. They were really buying in. You started to see flashes of a team that could be really good. And then yet, despite all that optimism, you had training camp. And as soon as the puck dropped on the season, 0-5 on the road trip. An absolute slip. And it wasn't just that they were sort of playing poorly. It was the three blown leads, multi-goal blown leads in games that led to regulation losses. Like they just couldn't handle the pressure at all. So to me, and, and, and let's be real. Like if you talk to pro scouts, they'll often talk about like an October player, like October, November hockey is when the game should be at its easiest based on those who've played the game for decades on end, who've, you know, uh, who professionally evaluate players. Like, there's, you know, a, a, a line of thought that you have to be careful about the quick starter in some ways. Because as the games become higher leverage later in the year into the playoffs where it changes once again, the checking gets tighter, the attention to detail gets far more rigorous, the scoring tends to go down, right? Like, there's a difference between October and November hockey and what you're going to see down the stretch in games like that the Islanders and the Penguins and the Buffalo Sabres, and honestly, even the Calgary Flames and the Winnipeg Jets and company are going to be playing. So how do you explain this team getting the yips in the part of the year that should be a little more open? Because you mentioned, for example, October and November are low stakes, and later in the year are high stakes. Well, for this team, it's the reverse, right? The second half Mm. games don't really have stakes left, and early in the year, they have stakes, right? And there's a lot of pressure. You think about the environments the last couple seasons where they've sort of come into the season, right? Last season, it was, even under sort of Travis Green, it was, okay, we made this big OEL Garland trade. This is, we're coming off a disastrous 2021 campaign. We've got to we've got to really excel here. Like there's pressure on, you know, Jim Benning's job is on the line, potentially Travis Green's job is on the line. Organizationally, there's a lot of pressure. And um, and then going into this season, it was unfinished business, right? It was, this is this is now Boudreaux's a potential uh, lame duck coach here. So yep. that's how I'd kind of look at it. And the business was quickly finished. <laughs> the shop closed before December hit. With... What we're seeing, right, and we'll get into, you know, Pedersen's continued excellence and the bat down on the PK, which was just an all-world play. We'll get into Kuzmenko scoring 30 goals, a a remarkable story, considering 
where he was at in the KHL last year and the way that he's performed this year. We'll talk about JT Miller's improvement too, but I want to start with Rick talking because I know a concern we shared and you even asked him about it in his season opening presser was Rick Tockett's Arizona Coyotes played negative low event hockey. Was this the first time we saw something approximating what a finished Rick Tockett product might look like? I don't think so, just because since he's taken over, there have been a lot more of the up-tempo, exciting sort of games. And again, I really think that with how like lack of entertaining that game was, it was more about the Ducks being unable to really bring anything to the table. And, and honestly, maybe the atmosphere in the building. Yeah. Like the atmosphere in the building and, and, you know, I know you were watching from home, but it's the quietest I've ever heard that barn and Rogers arena, the Boudreaux bump had a lot of really raucous nights, right? Like down the stretch last year, that building was raucous. And I tend to think that the clubs leveled up their game presentation. And I think you're seeing a different crowd at Canucks games in part, because I don't think the teams quite at the same level as a commodity as it was 15 years ago when they were among the best teams in the league. Like, I think you're seeing a less business-like crowd. You're seeing more normal people. You're seeing affordable tickets, sale uh, prices on the second. It's crazy to hear you say 15 years ago, by the way. Why? (laughs) I'm just like, wow, it's been that long since. Yeah. There's since since like the the days of the season ticket holder wait lists. And and so I think the, you know, paradoxically, as the club's fortunes have flagged a bit, I think the atmosphere at the building's gotten way better, way better. And having been there, because I, I was, I didn't go to the Nashville game, which you did, and I, I know you said that it was a high-energy game, but the Toronto game was, like, effervescent, was, like, electric in that building. And to go from that to abject silence to the point where Canucks game operations started, you know, bringing it up and trying to cajole the fans into, you know, literally wake me up <laughs> playing the Evanescence track during the third period. Um was stark was like gave me whiplash whiplash inducing so sorry I, I think it was probably the atmosphere in addition to the coyotes yeah i don't think this was that. a game where they where it's like this is rick Tockett's style of hockey i just don't think you can sustain a sort of highly competitive up-tempo sort of like you're not going to have that performance 82 games out of a year inevitably especially this team's come close the opposition this team's come close man even the games that they've lost or looked bad or that have been embarrassing like for the most part it's like Five four, but that's just been defensive breakdown. Six five, but no, I, I, like, I, agree I don't think you. I don't think it's been a case. Like I don't think it, it's it, this was a case of they're all of a sudden intentionally playing boring hockey. Is the point that I'm that okay? I'm okay, to make. I understand. You don't think it's systematic? Yes. Just that they're making less mistakes, perhaps. Yes, <laughs> I yeah. Like honestly, a big reason why Canucks games are so entertaining on both sides is because. They the, the Canucks themselves make so many mistakes in terms of their reads, decision-making, with the puck, without the puck, and that leads other teams to, ha- to be able to create offense. And the Canucks are also talented. Not, I don't know if the right word is talent, talent or uh, aggressive enough, probably a combination where they can force other teams into mistakes as well and sort of it becomes high-event hockey. It's definitely been high-event hockey. So... The Canucks have had more goals in the games that they've played, both for and against, than any other team in hockey. I don't think anyone's going to be surprised to hear that, right? Uh, They're second in the league only to the Philadelphia Flyers in fights. 
Uh, we all know about the historic comeback streaks. We all know that their power play is good and fun, and their penalty kill is bad and not fun. Although, hey, it's scoring goals of late. Yeah. So maybe maybe I'll have to change that fun um, qualifier in describing it. Do you think it's just exhausting at some point for these players to be playing in these types of games night after night? Like, do you think last night came as a relief? Just a drama-free home win. I think so, right? One like, would hope. When you're at home, you think about the highs and lows. It's like every game is so, you know, there, there's so many peaks and valleys. Just even in the span of the game, you mentioned all the comebacks. Like mm. the Montreal game is a classic example, right? Where it's like you win that that game where they'd fallen, de- fallen behind three or four nothing early in the first period and come all the way, all the way back players will always talk about how emotionally draining it is to have to sort of mount a comeback. I, I heard earlier in the season, just Leon Dreisettle at one point, for example, talking about the Oilers having to constantly battle back in games. And he, he sounded defeated in, in saying, we're, we're just sick and tired of having to come back from games and, you know, having these swings, highs and lows. And so, yeah, I mean, again, there are going to be nights in the course of a season where, whether it's because of the schedule, injuries, whatever, that as a group you may not have the inj- you may not have the energy, the the 100% max effort, and it is a valuable tool in your arsenal to be able to just manage a game to a bit of a slower tempo, and and bring a team down to that level and sort of win in those types of environments too. Well, and that poses the question: Do you think what we're seeing under Talkit leading up to last night, but obviously including last night, like are we seeing something different? from the Canucks defensively or are we seeing fewer mistakes? Are we just seeing more game awareness? And, and I'm look, I'm sure it's a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B, but what stands out to you more? Yeah. It's interesting because when talk at first took over, I asked him directly in terms of you want to fix the structure. You want to fix this team's defensive habits. But one thing coaches will say is that systemically teams aren't very different it's not as if they're radically different systems it's often just about how much pressure you're applying on the forecheck uh and, and that sort of thing what do you want to do with the puck in terms of do you want to make plays with control do you want do you want to be a team that's more dump and chase so I asked him is more of your overhauling the structure going to be about mindset philosophy priority game situation game management and mm. he agreed with that sort of premise and said it's going to be about inst- instilling those habits rather than all of a sudden, we're radically overhauling the X's and O's. And I think we've seen that, right? For example, since Talkett has taken over, how many times has JT Miller tried to make a home run play at the offensive blue line east-west? Yeah, rarely. not often. We've, we've, we've rarely seen him make that sort of mistake. We've rarely seen other forwards make those types of devastating turnovers that resulted in a lot of rush, uh, rush breakdowns. The other part of it, too, is I think with the AHL defensemen that have come up with all Oliver Ekman Larson now out of lineup with Tyler Myers playing with Breezeball. It seems as if, like when I think back to how much this team was allowing off the rush earlier in the season, it felt like at least half, if not more, of those odd man rush breakdowns were against the OEL Tyler Myers pairing. <laughs> okay. And so I wonder how much of it is just like OEL's hurt right now, and these AHL AHL defensemen, whether it's Juleson, Breezeball, Wolanin, they're playing really well and they're giving this team more reliable minutes as well. And that's really helped helped as well. So I think there are a combination of, of factors at play, but to me it's about the lack of mistakes and playing more responsibly. 
I want to hear from the 650, 650 inbox. So I'm gonna I'm gonna pose a question to our listeners here and text in. We'll have Lena read some of the the best submissions because I'm curious to know how fans feel about this. My view is that would you trade 15 exciting home games for 15 boring home games in which your team picks up 80% of the points, right? So, um, you know, in, in this case, we'd be talking about, what, 22 points. 22 points in, in out, out of the 15 home games we're talking about, but they're hard to watch. <laughs> it looks and feels like it did last night. Maybe it even sounds like it did last night at Rogers Arena. Would you trade exciting hockey for more wins at home? I'm curious to hear from you. 650-650 inbox. Let us know what you think. My view. Starting next season. Starting next season. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that is the part. That is the other part of this. I don't want to go do the whole tanking thing. But man, it's annoying that we're doing this exact same song and dance again this year. I've just come to accept it. Like I'm not angry. Everyone else has too. Everyone else has too. And and people say things to me like, "That's not the direction they're going in." And it's like, okay, but you can't just be like, and that means that it's right. You know, like if you accept the terms of a debate like that, then you're rubber stamping it. You're saying like, and that's fine. It's not fine. It's ridiculous that this team does that every year. It's it, I can't go along to get along like that. I just can't do it. But what else are you supposed to do? Like, come on the radio and yell every day. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> the, 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 have, have a million people in my mentions being like, we're tired of you. I mean, that's that's well, how that's what I'm going I to do. I get your frustration, so. but at a certain point, like, it just it's predictable, right? And you just have to sort of accept it, and you have to look at some of the um, silver linings, right, in terms of at least – for me, anyway, you try and focus on, okay, earlier at points in the season, we've seen Arthur Silovs, a young man fulfilling his NHL dreams, playing really well. That's great for him. You see Thatcher Demko coming back after a rough start to the season, the injury yep. coming back. That's his first real adversity, overcoming it. We're watching the growth of a player in the league mature into um, mature into somebody who's more resilient, right? Love you're that. seeing Pod Colson crowd, like, uh, more so Pod, Pod yeah. Colson, but you're seeing Pod Colson start to see strides in his game. Pedersen and Hughes continue to, to continue to dominate. So it's, you know, I, I I've accepted that this team isn't going to tank, and I've tried to fixate on the positives. Right, I get it, but also, isn't it like if you have a dog that won't stop peeing on your furniture? Is it like, well, I've accepted. <laughs> That he's going to pee on that specific couch. But what are you going to do? Train him not to. What, you're going to trade the roster to lose games? No, you can't do that. But, I mean, at least I'm not going to ignore it. I'm going to keep trying to fix the problem. I'm not going to be like, well, that's fine. Okay, who, what is... If it's objectively not fine, I'm what, not going to... What is anybody in the organization supposed to do? Besides the one thing well, I will no, say they already, is... They've already, they've already not done it. The, the only thing that I would say right now that I don't uh, agree with is how heavily they're, like, the minutes Pedersen and Hughes are playing. Oh, yeah. Well, and, and JT Miller. Yeah. And, I mean, we'll see with Thatcher Demko. Rick Tockett's saying, you know, I'm not going to play him four or five straight games. But um, to this point, since Demko returned, he's played four or five. Right? So is there a world where he should play something closer to 60 or 50%? I would vote yes. Yeah. I would vote managing his workload and sending him to the Worlds to play actual meaningful games, although the Worlds is um, a little hit and miss in terms of effort level. But nonetheless, like that would be my – that would be what I'd see the, this organization do with Demko. I think the the issue is is that it's already – the die's already cast a little bit. They didn't go the full mile 
to weaken the team. Yeah. Right. One of the moves that I was calling for uh, would have been the Kuzmenko deal. Yeah. Which instead they extended him and he scores 30 goals last night. I mean, how impressed, how, how much, let me put it this way to you. How much has Kuzmenko exceeded your expectations coming into the season? Significantly. Massively, I, right? I, I thought over under on 40 points, I would have taken the over over under on 50 points. I would have taken the under. Like I expected yeah, him to fair. sort of be in the 40 to 50 point range. And for him to already be at 30 goals, it's been it's been nothing short of phenomenal. Not only that, but seeing, I think, the in-season evolution where, at least for me earlier in the year, it felt like he was more capitalizing on the space that Pedersen was creating for him in terms of Pedersen's drawing all these defenders. Kuzmenko's doing an excellent job of getting open. He's moving well off the puck. He's making good reads. And so he's, he's getting a lot of those chances around the blue paint. Now it feels like he's a lot more dynamic with the puck mm. where I'm watching him and I'm going the moves that this guy can make when he ha- when he has the puck on his stick it's a mystery box. I don't I don't know what he's going to do. He's that creative, he has that level of hands, he has that level of ability to make plays in traffic, which is why he's able to sort of have a lot of plays like the like the goal like the goal he just had uh, uh, the other night where he's able to take an sort of like awkward pass in one stride, sort of weave his way way in, take his momentum towards the net. And when you're that close to the net, it's just like chaotic things happen and he's able to able to get a goal. Even if it was, even if it went in off a ducks player, for me, it's the fact that he had the puck control to be able to engineer it there in the first mm, place. Yeah. Well, I know. And some of the things that he can do, with his weight shifts, with the way he protects the puck, and then the, like, absurd radius with which his passes go, right? Like, he'll do hook passes around his body. Uh, I still think his playmaking is a more impressive skill than his finishing. And yet, here he is, 30 goals. Uh, If you told me that the debate around Kuzmenko was, is he, like, an elite player or a first-line player? Which, I, I mean, again, I'm fading both, probably. But I would have expected, like, is he a top six guy or a middle six guy? Yeah. Would have been, like, the debate terms that I would have assumed. I think he's already put himself in a different category. Let's get into that more. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff to unpack around Kuzmenko in the wake of a performance in which he scored 30 goals on the season in his very first NHL campaign. Amazing stuff. We'll be back on the other side of the break, and we'll get to your texts. You're listening to Canucks Talk on Sportsnet 650. Get smarter when you listen to Hockey Talk, the Hockey PDO cast with Dmitry Filipovich. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome back. It's Canucks Talk, it's Drance, it's Harmon Dial. We're here killing time with you on a lunch hour and talking all things Canucks. Uh, of course, I'd, I'd like to remind you that we're coming to you live from the Kintec studio. Kintec Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintec.net. And of course, our show, our program, to crib Mike Halford. Is brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Like Equipment, your Kubota all-star team. AvenueMachinery.ca is where you'll find more information about those fine folks and DouglasLikeEquipment.com. Uh, 
We'll give you everything you need to get those skid steers in order. All right. We left talking about Kuzmenko, but I'm hoping we'll tap in producer Lena and we'll see. Lena, do we get any good feedback about whether fans would rather have exciting home games or wins? We've got lots of feedback. And also, we've got feedback on Harm's positivity and uh, people texting in, someone tell Harm it's not positive thoughts time. (laughs) (laughs) So just a friendly reminder, we do have 10 minutes of positivity, and I'll leave that up to you guys. Producer Lena, keeping me on track. We'll do do it this segment. We'll do it at the end of this segment. We'll do 10 minutes of positivity. So So they have to force that in on you? Yeah. Well, (laughs) a, a childhood friend of mine texted into the program and said, you should do this because you're obviously going mad slowly. So <laughs> we adopted it, and it's a lot of fun. We have a cool drop. It's it's great. So come up with a positive thought. I should have told you this before the show. Come up with a positive thought. We'll do it at the end of the segment. All right, Lena, what are the fans saying? Okay, there's a, there's a lot. Um, let's see here. Uh, the games I want are playoff games where we are mm. competitive. Happy to have a workman-like regular season. Um, like Charlene Langley texted in here I would totally trade off exciting hockey for boring hockey in a heartbeat just because I know we'll have exciting hockey when it matters and that's going into the playoffs and potentially being in the playoffs that sounds more exciting to me yeah and I think that's right like I think about that Boston Bruins game that we saw at Rogers Arena what three weekends ago and until Linus Allmark scored it wasn't a particularly exciting game But the Bruins took the measure of the Canucks, knew exactly how much effort they had to give, and just managed the game. They didn't give away anything until they'd taken a 2-0 lead. They didn't take any chances. At one point, Brad Marchand went out of position to throw a hit, and Patrice Bergeron looked him off on a pass opportunity the next time to to make sure. He reined him back in, quite literally, right? These two guys who've played together for a decade plus, he he looked him off. He was like, no, we're 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 not playing like that tonight, Brad. It's too, it's, it's game 63. This team is going nowhere. We're giving 65% effort and we're coming out with two points. I think that sort of loops into what we're talking about with Rick Tockett's formulation of winning hockey or, or tactical noose or situational awareness as it were. And, you know, I know you think that's been more impactful than the systems play, but, but how much of it to, and, and you'll know when I say this, that we're not in positivity 10 minutes yet. How much of it is addition by subtraction on the blue line? Yeah, I mean, I was sort of saying a lot of the rush problems have uh, have evaporated as soon as they've uh, gone away from the uh, the OEL Myers pair. But it's also Stillman leaving. It's yeah. also Shen leaving. You know, Shen was a good fit with Quinn Hughes. Yeah. And every, you know, we all we all love him in this market and for good reason. But he's not the fleetest of foot. In fact, he might be the opposite of the fleetest of foot. Right. Um, OEL too, right? I mean, you lose those three guys and you replace them with, not that they're burners, but Juleson, Willannon, Burroughs can all move. Like, is how much of it is this, this group just has more foot speed? I think that's definitely a, a you know, a, a significant part of it. I, I think there's, there's definitely a lot more to it in terms of earlier in the year, I felt the forwards too were really irresponsible defensively. Mm. I mean, in terms of their puck management, how many times they would leave the defenders with no help, no support, even on the breakout. I'm watching somebody like JT Miller. Early in the year, I was thinking, especially when he was playing center, 
boy, he's having such a tough time. And he's making it harder on his defenseman to help break the puck out mm. because he's hanging on, hanging on to the puck for too long. He just isn't making the right decisions. He's trying to make crossing passes within his own end. Uh, you, I, I saw someone like Brock Besser it, in his defensive zone, losing every board battle, unable to make a play from the defensive half wall. And it wasn't just those two guys. Those are, those are just a couple examples. It felt like the forwards collectively were doing so little to help the D. With I, the exception of Patterson. Exactly. And I think that you, I watch Miller now. I'm going, wow, he's coming so deep in the defensive zone. But now he's making the right plays. He's making the right decisions, yeah. right? And you still have the odd occasion, right, where he'll try a pass, where he'll try a pass, and it'll lead to a turnover and a chance against. That'll happen. But you're seeing a much more consistent work rate with him. With I think Brock Besser's two A game has stabilized a lot down the lineup. I think you've you've seen a lot of these guys managing the puck better, helping the D more, and I think that's been a big part of the improved. Uh, two-way control that the Canucks have shown in the last 15-20 games. For all of that, though, the five-on-five offense still hasn't been there for JT, right? True. I think, yeah. is it four assists? Yeah, his, it, it is true, though, that last, I think, 16 games, his on-ice shooting percentage is 5%. Right, okay. So there's some so bad luck he's get, going he's on. Getting, like, I, I think he he was just above 50% in terms of shot temp share and, like, yeah, like 5% on-ice shooting percentage. Got it. Can he sustain, like, is that something that will revert? Like, it, will that regress as much as it would if he were on the wing? Is part of it that he's backtracking so far, right? Like, is he playing, does he have to work so hard defensively that he actually gives up some of what he's able to generate? You know what? That's actually a good point. Because in my head, I've been praising how much harder he's worked. Like, I see how he's working his tail off to battle guys the, in front of the net. Like the, the back checking too. He's putting the work in. Yeah, he is. He is not dogging it at all. He's not cheating for offense. So I, I think that is part of it. I think the other part of the equation too is that he hasn't had like he hasn't had the type of wingers that I think can do that for him mm-hmm. in terms of driving the offense if he's being more responsible defensively because Brock Best is a good player. I like him, but he's not the sort of player that's going to transition the puck up the ice, create a lot individually he's not a dynamic player he's more of a complementary piece on a line and we had Connor Garland earlier there now you have Phil DiGiuseppe who's worked hard he you know battles but he's not going to drive the bus offensively so I I wonder how much of it could be fixed if you you know going into next season there yeah (laughs) yeah whether it's him whether it's just somebody who can help drive offensively so it's not just JT being forced to do it all by himself. I know a guy. (laughs) (laughs) Just saying, I know a guy. Um, All right. So I'm curious about the Miller-Pedersen axis right now. Not just on the penalty kill. I mean, the fact that they've scored on, what is it, eight of their last 14 shots shorthanded. Three of them are empty nets, in fairness. So while it will regress, and a 60% shooting clip over 104 on five minutes is outrageous, three of them are empty nets. But that still means that they've scored five on their last 11 shots shorthanded. That said, that said, I I don't want to get into the whether or not the power penalty kill has improved under Rick Tockett. I, I'm sort of fading that take at the moment. I know it's been on a roll of late, 
I don't see evidence that it's significantly better at the moment. But I want to talk about Pedersen and Miller because a big part for me of what we've seen on this three-game win streak, of on what we've seen as Rick Tockett's sort of built up a better than 500 record in his first, is it 18 games now? Has been that he's got these two centermen playing at this level. They are, I mean, obviously we know what Pedersen's doing. He's entering the heart conversation, in my opinion. Yeah. He won't actually enter it because this team's going to fall way short of the playoffs, but he's playing at the level where if this team was in the mix, there'd be heart buzz around him. That's how good he's been. Yeah. Miller has merely been like, good. But man, when you have two good centermen going, and and this has been by far and away. Like I know I'm a big, I still fade Miller as a center. I I think he's a better winger. I I think this team would be better off loading up the t- their top line. Like I'd love to see Miller with Kuzmenko and Pedersen, with second line center Niels Amon or well, Sheldon Rise. I mean that's that's the problem, but that's not J T Miller's problem. Like, yeah, no, it would be it would it would be a really fun line. I, on, on some level, you need to take care of the top. Of your lineup first. But would there be an argument to the notion that if you have Pedersen and Kuzmenko together and they can already drive really high-end results, the, the you know, like, how, how are there only marginal gains by loading up somebody like Miller on that line? Well, there are, but, I mean, that line is good, but, I mean, the Pavelski line's at, like, 72% goals for. True. You know, yeah. like, there. I mean, it is marginal, but it's also mammoth if you have that extra 15 percent goals for yeah. from your top line like that makes a huge difference in terms of your ability to actually outscore opponents but i don't think the canucks have the horses to hold their own though without that line on the ice but they also don't when miller's playing second line center like they still aren't outscoring teams with miller on the ice i know some of its percentages but anyway how much hope for next season Okay, false hope or real hope? When Miller and Pedersen, 1-2, are going like this, this team's imposing. Real hope or false hope for next season? It is it it is real hope in the sense that when they're both going, they're always, they've always been that way. The problem mm. is they've, they've been so inconsistent about both of them firing at the same time, right? You think about since Miller and Pedersen have been on the same team, right? 1920 season... They both had fantastic years on the same line. Lot of line. Canucks made the playoffs. Had that bubble year, right? 2021 yep. campaign, all-Canadian division year. Pedersen is just off, right? Goes down with injury. Miller's, after a rough start, keeps keeps clicking. But you never had those two guys at the top of their game at the same time. Last season, Miller has that 99-point season, but Pedersen has that... Horrific first half. Again, that first half is what cost them that season. Over the second half, when they had the Boudreaux bump, yes, that's when Pedersen was at his apex. That's when Miller was continuing to produce at a high level. And guess what? The results kept coming, right? So it is true that really there is such a correlation where when both of those guys are playing at a really good or at at least an elite level for one of those guys, that this team plays at a sort of like playoff pace. But the question is with Miller at center, right? 
will you see a continuation of that for a full season next year? And that, like, or will, I don't know. will he even be here? I mean, that's the other yeah. thing that's always lingering around Miller. But I think that's an interesting way of framing it. Here's here's another real hope or false hope. Okay. Have you thought about the fact that it feels like we've had very few stretches where all of the supposed like pillars of this next quote-unquote great Canucks era have all been going at the same time. So let me let me let me explain what I mean. 2019-20, we know Hughes and Patterson arrived, but yeah. Demko was still a backup. He played well, but then he got thrust into a starter's role. He didn't play well, crushed it in the bubble. That bubble series, though, against Vegas was like one time where Hughes, Pedersen, Demko, all like absolutely carrying the mustard. Not just the mustard, like the Dijon, like a mustard platter. They were carrying so much of it. The next season, 2021, Demko plays great, but Pedersen doesn't for about 20 games, and then he gets hurt and we don't see him again. Yeah. So we have two of them going. And also Hughes took a step back that, that year, too. Yeah. But Demko was fantastic because he established himself as a starter. The next year, Pedersen struggles massively for the first half of the year. Right? And it's really only like a 20-game sample before Demko gets hurt again where all three are going. And then you come to this year, and Pedersen's been outrageous. Quinn Hughes, I think, has been really good since about mid-November. And and I know people like I, – I saw Dom, our colleague Dom LeCision tweet out like his Norris Trophy GSVA chart, and people are like, where's Hughes? And I think one of the things that sort of kept him out of that discussion beyond team the lack of team success – People will forget this, but the first month of the season, I think he was dealing with some sort of injury, right? Like, he, there were a lot of maintenance days, a lot of suspicious maintenance days. Uh, he missed a couple games. He looked tired. Even in preseason. Yeah, he didn't look <clears throat> great. Like, it wasn't his best month. Yeah. Now, I think since about mid-November, since that road trip in mid-November where they beat the Avalanche and the Vegas Golden Knights, I think he's been sensational. One of the, one of the top five defensemen in hockey for me in that sort of, like, elapsed time frame. But there was a month there where it wasn't quite going. And then, and Demko hasn't been going all year until, like, the last two weeks. And it's like, this last two weeks feels like, like, it feels like for all that this team has been built around these three guys, we've got, like, maybe 40 games over three years at which they've all been at the peak of their powers at the same time. Is that cause for hope next season? Like, if you get maximum output from these three guys at the same time are you cooking yes but you can't here's the thing there are so many fluctuations in player performances that you can't bank on it like mm. you can't like look at the Colorado Avalanche this year right you can have a, a great team on paper but inevitably something will happen like no guy's going to it's rare to have a situation where everybody's playing at the peak of their potential at the same time like whether right. it's injury or whatever it is like again to bring up the Avs example like they had McKinnon hurt for a while they had Landis Cog hurt for a while Nichushkin and then you know that created you know there were back end injuries and that sort of created a situation where it's like Taves McCarr the best D pair in the NHL last season. Now all of a sudden there was that stretch where they were playing pretty average hockey. Like I, you remember when they came here oh, yeah. and they looked so, they looked so mid, yeah. right? Like Taves was so mid was, was losing out on icing races that were leading to goals against. And 
So it's like things happen over the course of the season, whether it's injuries, whether it's somebody's deep partner goes down, whether it's um, a lack of chemistry. Things just go wrong over the course of a season. Uh, goaltenders are so volatile, you know, like even around the league, like forget Demko, like look at what we're seeing with Jacob Markstrom from second in Vesna to below 900, right? You have so many fluctuations and so many variables at play that it is a cause for hope in the sense that if it happens, this team can absolutely make the playoffs next season. But you can't like you have to construct your team in a way where you're okay if 80, 75 to 80% of what you're hoping for goes right as opposed to 100%, mm. if you get what I mean. I, I mean, I agree. It's a thing I always bring up about aiming just to make the playoffs as opposed to trying to win a championship. Like, if you're aiming for the middle in hockey, where there's so many variables outside your specific control, like, you're likely to be 20th. You got to aim for the top to make sure you're in the top 16. Yeah. Like, that's how hard it is to win in this league. All right, it's time. The moment all of our listeners have been waiting for. Let's cue that ethereal music. It's time for 10 minutes of positivity on Canucks Hour. The calmest, most reasoned show on the Vancouver airwaves, where we always see the brighter side of things. You don't have to do your segment in this voice. I'm just <laughs> playing around with it. All right. You go first. As, uh, as the host, I will defer to my guest to come up with something positive to discuss and enjoy for 10 minutes and no more. I know I'm picking at an obvious, but in this overall sort of time period of Canucks hockey, right? Whether it works out or not, and we've seen a lot of pain in previous years, the one thing that I'm appreciative of and grateful for is the fact that we're seeing Patterson and Hughes, two players that are right up there in terms of being the best at their position, absolutely cooking. Like, that is special to watch on a night-to-night basis. It makes these games entertaining to watch. Like, there are a lot of games. Like, forget about the Anaheim Mm -hmm. one the other night. That was just boring. But there are a lot of other games where it's mostly boring, but the Pedersen line is just dominating. They're playing at a level where every time you're on on the ice, you're thinking that they're going to score. It's like they're creating scoring chances at will the chemistry between Pedersen and Kuzmenko, like that on its own can make a game worth watching. And then Hughes, seeing the way that he can dazzle, spin off checks in the defensive zone, walk the blue line. It's Watching Quinn Hughes skate is like poetry on ice. It's my favorite part of watching the Canucks is literally just watching him skate. Like forget about any passes, scoring goals, points. Just the edge work, the spins, the turns. I think we become numb to it at a certain point where it's like we're so used to it that sometimes I, you know, against the Nashville game, I was watching it in person. I was, and I just took a step to appreciate how, how great it is that we at least, even if this era doesn't pan out, that we're at least getting to witness two of the best players in franchise history. I like it. And you're right. These guys are incredible. They're so much fun to watch. There's no doubt about it. And it's been a remarkable season from both of them, despite this team's struggles. All right. I'm going to go a little bit off the board. Do you know what happened last night? No. (laughs) Connor Bedard scored his 60th goal of the year. Okay. Okay. I think it's amazing. 
that there is this much high-end talent coming out of the city of Vancouver right now. Like, we are talking about Connor Bedard, who is the best prospect to ever come out of Western Canada. I'm not saying he's going to be the best player. I'm not saying he's going to be better than Joe Sackick or whatever ex-Hall of Famer who also happens to be from Western Canada. I'm saying at the age of 17, we've never had a player be this much better than their peer group going into their draft year. But it's not just him, right? We talk a lot on the show about Zach Benson. You know he's my guy. Andrew Crystal is doing outrageous things in Kelowna. And then Matthew Wood, who's the one of the youngest player in the NCAA over point per game at, at UConn in Div 1. Six foot four. Like, this is unbelievable. And then there's the Lucas Dragosevich. We're going to have five guys picked from this city in the top 40. No matter what happens with the NHL team, right? The flame burns in this city for this sport. And the level of talent coming out as a result is just mind-blowing. Mind-numbing. It's an incredible embarrassment of riches. And because this is 10 Minutes of Positivity... I won't even mention that it's disappointing that the Canucks don't have three top 40 picks Hey, in this particular draft year. Here's a positive, though. If that continues, where BC hopefully continues producing great hockey talent, hopefully you have situations down the line when it's like Dan Hamhuse, BC kid. There you go. Wants to come home. That's the spin. There you go. Exactly. Like, rights are traded to multiple teams, but I'm absolutely 1,000% hitting the market. Right? Like, look at, look at how, I mean, this is such... The Rangers were so lucky. I don't know. They were. They were that, with Adam, Adam Fox, Fox, with with Jacob Truba. Norris Trophy defenseman. With Patrick Kane. You get that for free, right? So it's like, hopefully down hey, the road. It wasn't free. They had to give up Joey Keane. Oh, okay. That was basically free. <laughs> <laughs> Joey Keane's a good prospect. Um, but yeah, hopefully it you continue churning a lot of talent and you get back to the point where it's like, with, with the Leafs, for example... It's like every Mark Giordano, it, 700K. Well, I swear to God, every player that gets acquired, signed or traded, is like, oh, I was such a big Leafs fan going up. I can't wait to don the. And it's like, dude, that's like half your team. Stop talking about it. It's not special <laughs> that, that a guy came home to Toronto. It's like, oh, wow, you found an NHL player from Ontario wow. who likes the Leafs? <laughs> Breaking. <laughs> exactly. So hopefully Vancouver now gets some I like that. time in the sunshine. Hey, you know what? That's that. a really good positive spin on this. And and look, it it has happened before. They haven't always executed it, but the team took meetings with Jamie Ben when he was an RFA and considered uh, doing you know all manner of weird offer sheet structures, including like multiple one year offers to just walk him to UFA. Had the same conversations with Shea Weber, right? I mean, there is a draw in this province and in this city. Still, for NHL teams, like despite the cost of living, despite the Canadian factor, despite um, you know some of the disadvantages, the media market, the fact that you know you and I exist, um, despite those sort of things, there are advantages still that Vancouver has by being Vancouver. And you're right; those could sharpen as uh, a new wave of young Vancouver-born stars enter the NHL. So there you have it. 10 minutes of positivity. I tried my best. I almost got through it. That was a short 10 minutes. <laughs> that's as much as I can take. Oh, man. Well, thank goodness that's over. We'll be back. You are listening to Drance and Dial on Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650.
Welcome back to a very special edition of Canucks Talk Now with more Harmon Dial. I'm Thomas Drance. I'm your host, Dial, our special guest for a second hour. Thanks for sticking with us, and thanks also to our wonderful sponsors. Canucks Talk, of course, is brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota All-Star team. AvenueMachinery.ca will give you more information about them, as will DouglasLakeEquipment.com. Of course, we are coming to you live from the Kintech studio, Kinware, Kintech, excuse me, Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. There's a lot of Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. And of course, you can engage with us and with our producer, Lena, who is manning the mailbag for us today. 650, 650, that's the Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dun- Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver. Visit them online at DunbarLumber.com. One day I will learn to say that. It's basically a tongue twister. Dunbar Lumber and Lumbar. I've, I've been advocating for them to add like a chiropractic practice so that they're... <laughs> Dunbar, Lumber, and Lumbar. It would be easier for me anyway. All right. So we've got that positivity out of us. Ugh. Yeah. Yuck. Thank goodness. <laughs> I can move on with my life. Man, I'm really I'm really starting to resent that segment. <laughs> yeah. I can bash it, but not while it's going on. It's a really unfortunate thing. I do have another positive thing I want to get into at greater length. Though. Okay, stop. Back to back? You're a changed man. Sorry, I didn't actually want the music. I just... (laughs) (laughs) I truly cannot... handle this. This is a historic moment. (laughs) (laughs) Unprecedented. Uh, Nice. Nicely done. I, uh, okay. No, I wanted to talk a little bit more about something we, we touched on, but didn't get into it you know, the sort of length that I think the topic deserves. And that's Andre Kuzmenko and what we've seen. Okay. I'm really impressed. I think he's really good. But I also think there's a real chance that this is his absolute apex. Right? He's 27. It's He's a rookie, but it's not like he's 23. Right? He's going to be 28 and then 29 over the life of his next contract. And most importantly, for me anyway, the fact that he got to 30 goals on a on a puck that deflected off of Mason McTavish's skate. And as you as you pointed out, it was a skilled play to create the opportunity nonetheless. But reinforces for me one thing that I'm beginning to side-eye with a fair bit of skepticism, and that is 30 goals, not a lot of shots. Right? He is scoring on 26%. Of his shots. Now, to put this into context for everybody, if you go large sample over the last five years, do you know the best finisher in the NHL is by percentage? It's obvious if you can't guess it. Stamkos? No, it's Leon Dreisaitl, which makes sense because he's got the quickest release I've seen since Marcus Nasland and also benefits from, you know, the backdoor McDavid stuff. It's sub 19%. It's like high 18%. So, 
in order to sustain this sort of goal scoring clip, Kuzmenko either needs to shoot more, which by the way, his teammates and Rick Tockett, Kuzmenko told Patrick Johnston of the Vancouver province. Good article you can read today, uh, like urge him to do, but he's going to have to up his shot volume a ton or we have to believe that he's the best, most efficient finisher in the sport. I like the wrist shot. He's a low-volume guy, and low-volume guys like Alex Alex Tongay, Milan Lucic uh, is sort of another example, can sustain elevated percentages, particularly if their average shot distance is as short as Kuzmenko's is. But he's got 13 goals off deflections, a ton of like put-ins from the blue paint, passing the puck into the net in, in concert with Elias Pettersson that defenders seem to have taken away for the most part, especially when the Canucks are on the power play. Like, when was the last time you saw Kuzmenko back door goal? It's been a while, right? I think the regression is going to hit, at least in terms of his finishing efficiency. And it's going to be on him to evolve his game. Like, he's going to have to find other ways to score going forward here. I think we've already seen that happen. I think we've already seen him adjust how he plays and who he is and how he can manufacture offense. There's a lot of excellent attributes there, but am I buying that he's the most efficient finisher in the league? I don't think so. Like, I don't think so. I don't know that it's at all. Even if he plays all year with Pedersen, and even if Pedersen is on fuego all season, like I don't know that it's all at all guaranteed that he's like a year-over-year 30-goal scorer. Yeah, I, I think that's a fair assessment. The other thing to keep in mind is We've seen it before at a different different context, different player, but we've seen the story play out with Brock Besser, right? Mm. First year in the league, he looked like, and of course with him there were injuries as well, but a big part of it too was the really high shooting percentage. Mm. And we thought that it was because he's got this elite shot and he's going to be this franchise consistent year-in, year-out 30-goal guy who may even hit 40 a year or two. And it just it just didn't materialize in that sort of way. Even when he when he's been healthy in some seasons, even when he's been on the top when he's been on top of his game, there are sort of two things to sort of keep in mind. The number one is obviously playing with Patterson will help ensure that it's not a dramatic dramatic cliff sort of fall off in the sense that Patterson is one of the rare players in the league who can historically has the ability to help his line finish at a ridiculously high efficiency, which you see in like how many situations are there where he's able to weave into the offensive zone and he draws like two or three guys. Like that's going to create Mm. that, that creates space that very few other players players can. And as long as Kuzmenko's still playing with Pedersen, he's going to benefit from that. I think it's a good point on the power play where I think that's an area where, he's not going to have as many potentially as many of those easy opportunities, especially because, and the impact hasn't been felt immediately, but losing Horvat in the bumper, I remember there, there have been a couple of goals. I remember early in the year when they played Nashville, not recently where one of Kuzmenko's back backdoor tap-ins was because both defenders were choking into the middle on Horvat. And it was like Kuzmenko was wide open. So the power play production, some of it I'm worried about. The other part of it too is, at least the cap hit is low enough to where if he regresses a bit, like he's still, you're not worried about the contract. Mm, right. 
No, I mean... There's a buffer there. He only has to be a good second-line forward to justify the, the yeah. contract, which is which is good. But I think this team needs him to be at a higher level than that, considering that he's already talked about as a core piece. Like, he needs to be a first-line yeah. caliber forward based on the factors outside of him that this team requires to accomplish their stated goals. Right? And, you know... I don't know. Like, I don't know what it looks like when the Canucks are, if the Canucks get to where they want and they're like a legit, no questions asked playoff team. Is Kuzmenko playing matchup minutes? Is he capable in a tough game against one of the best centermen in the sport or against a Mikhail Backlund or against a Patrice Bergeron where you're going Patterson versus that player head to head? Is he capable of doing the work as a two-way piece to make that to make that a line that can outscore Vancouver's opponent or at least hold it to a draw? Like those are questions that I still have, even though he's impressed me to this point, like enormously exceeded my expectations. The other part of it too is just with a lot of Vancouver's top players, as talk it continues to make an imprint on this team with their sort of puck management, their decision making. Certainly, we saw early when Taka took over, mm. him sort of shortening the leash on Kuzmenko, and, and even against Nashville, yeah, right? Yeah, we saw there it again. A, we saw it again, and you still see moments where, again, for me, it's it's fine for my taste, the level of, like, sometimes he's trying things and they don't work out, but they're still happening to where I wonder, at least from Taka's perspective, as we head into next season, as these games have much higher stakes potentially... Like how how will that relationship sort of evolve? How much how much freedom and wiggle room is Kuzmenko going to have to play the sort of creative style? Because I remember when, do you remember when Talkit placed for that one game Pod Colson on Pedersen's line mm. and sort of said, "I want that Pedersen line to play north south." That's one of the biggest things that Talkit has talked about. We want we want this line to play north south. Well, that's not Kuzmenko, right? He's a very creative player and he's more east west with a lot of what he likes to do offensively now i've always ca- i've always had the belief that you know when talkett said that i actually kind of disagreed where i was like he can actually excel either way like he can excel north south and he can excel east west yeah, but good players figure it out good players figure it out but from talkett's perspective will that east west eventually become you know uh, a liability a something liability. he doesn't want Right, and now it do, like for now it doesn't matter because he's still producing so much. But if the goals, you know, if we do see some regression, you know, could that have an impact on Tockett's trust level? The other thing is everyone who's played with Pedersen has put up massive numbers, right? And and it's one thing for it to be Kuzmenko, okay, who we all watch and we see the skill level, we see the puck protection, we see him feathering passes to soft areas of coverage, we see the way he gets open, which by the way I think is actually his best skill. Yeah. And isn't talked about enough. Like his movement through open space, you know, it's not Kaprizov level, but it, it it reminds me a lot of Bo Horvat, who's also extraordinary at it. Like the two best guys in the league for me are Kaprizov and Kyle Connor. When I watch those guys move in space, I'm just like, oh, these guys are. They have the um, they have like a wide, like an elite wide receiver thing where they're always open. Like, you know, and and uh, Kuzmenko's like not at that tier, but he's the next level down for me. Along with Bo Horvat, along with Patrice Bergeron, there's like uh, you know four or five guys who are just outrageous at it, and I think Kuzmenko's one of them. 
um, for all of that, you know, there's a tell when Lane Peterson can do it too, right? Like it's one thing for Kuzmenko to do it. It's one thing for Brock Besser to do it. It's one thing for Anthony Beauvillier to do it. But when Lane Peterson can do Come it. Come on. How long did Peterson keep that up? Like two weeks. It got him claimed off waivers. It extended his career. You're t- there was meaningful production there, man. I don't know, man. You think that's you think that's unfair? Well, I think it it definitely had an impact, but I don't think you can like you're right that Patterson elevates whoever he plays with. We saw it with Chase on towards the tail end of last season yeah. too. But and I do agree that a lot of Kuzmenko's production is sort of tethered to Patterson, but I don't know. I he see had a four a game run. He had a four game run playing 14 plus minutes when he first came up. And he had three points. None of them on the power play. That's that's three points. Sure, but nobody's meshed as well with Pedersen as Kuzmenko has either. No, right? of course. And and you can see the boost in Pedersen's numbers. Yeah. But considering that like Ilya Mikheyev is now a you know twenty five goal scorer so long as he plays with Pedersen, and Lane Peterson did as well as he did, and Chason did as well as he did, on and on down the line. Like, do you think Kuzmenko's at a level where he could drive the offense for a line on his own? I'm not sure yet. Because I think I do think you have to be able to do that before I'm calling you a first-line winger. Yeah. I think... True earlier, talent. True talent. Of yeah. course, he is a first-line winger for this team. But, like, is he a true talent first-line winger? I think I need to know. I need to be said, like, the, the answer to can he drive the offense on, on his own it needs to be yes without reservation. That's just my view. If you're going to be one of the top, yeah, you know that's fair. I I think the evolution of how much more dynamic he's looked with the puck sort of at least helps give more confidence. But we haven't seen that over an extended stretch, right? So we don't know. Like that's the honest answer. There's potential that he can do it, but we haven't. We have like we don't know either way with mm. certainty. I was getting dunked on a lot last night over my they should have dealt Kuzmenko reaction to when he first got extended. And I think a lot of people were getting mad because they thought I'd tweeted it last night. Like, after he scores 30 goals, like, too bad they didn't deal. Like, I didn't do that. It was a tweet from January that people were just resurfacing. My view, anyway, is that that's a long-term take. Like, if over the life of this current deal, Kuzmenko at some point scores, like, an iconic playoff goal that sends the Canucks to the Western Conference Final. I will be like, man, I got that wrong. This is great. Good for him. But the take was never based off of Kuzmenko not being superb. Right? In fact, it was based off the fact that I think he's extraordinary and thus would have returned a ton for a team that's not particularly close. Where do you come down when you think of what happened at this deadline the decision to extend Kuzmenko and what it means for this club going forward. Well, they just went in a different direction in terms of, I think, what a lot of us sort of um, were hoping for, right? Where I think there was there were, there were two lanes the Canucks could have picked, right? One was you deal Kuzmenko, you, do, you sort of keep the sort of haul that you got in the Horvat return, and, um, and you continue to just try and sell off. And you look at 
trying to turn things around in within like a two or three year timeline where you're aggressively in this short over the this next draft and maybe the one after trying to collect as many assets as possible for that trying to essentially rebuild the prospect to prospect pool on on the fly mm-hmm. right and and maneuver it that way or what the Canucks have instead chosen which is we think we can be competitive as soon as next season that's a priority for us and so we value what Kuzmenko brings as a player over the next two years greater than the futures greater yeah. than the futures right now I was in the same boat as you where I probably I would have preferred the first route in terms of overall big picture team direction, uh, especially because the other concern is what happens after the after these two seasons then right where he's either like he's a free agent again and if he has great numbers now he's a twenty nine year old free agent yeah so he's ready, looking for the long term like yeah. big contract and I think the big picture sort of question that you and I had was okay what are, are they gonna what can they win within these next two years that's going to justify that commitment, help their odds of winning a Stanley Cup compared to the type of haul that he could have gotten at, gotten at the deadline? But the Canucks have moved so decisively in this being competitive next season direction to where they clearly feel that they can win something within, within the next two years. Mm. So that's that, that's that's the situation. Again, you know, I'm I'm skeptical in terms of what they can pull off beyond just making the playoffs, in terms of winning anything meaningful. But it it again just resurfaces and opens up the can of worms question in terms of like it's well, not about him, it's not about the contract itself because the contract itself is fine even if you bake in regression. It totally. was just the bigger picture. Yeah, the contract was fair. The player is good. Did it make sense for this team? Well, I think people get really annoyed. By the fact that there's no route to discussing this team independent of that context. Yeah. You know, like, and and I think this is where we sort of come back to the, you know, my refusal to take the stick out of the mud (laughs) where my analysis is concerned is, you know, people just want to enjoy hockey. I think in this market, especially because there's been so much pain and suffering that people like are like, I just want to get excited toward the end of the season. And yet there's all these complicating factors. All of that said, you know, we were having a conversation in, I think, the second segment about the foot speed and the impact of making a few tweaks on the back end where you go from Shen Stillman OEL to, you know, Wolanin, let's say, Brisebois and Burroughs every game. Which, man, was obvious they should have done way earlier in the season, by the way, especially on, on the Burroughs front. And it's made a massive, massive difference in terms of how this team can move the puck, how they can play. They were such they played such a clean game yesterday. Only one giveaway assessed, and, and that matched what I saw. If you can have that big an impact, moving from those three guys to these three guys, doesn't that create an environment where Philip Pronick can really make a difference on this team. Oh, yeah. 100%. Especially because when I'd watch the tapes on him, he was way more of a two-way all-around type. Than a dynamic Than a puck dynamic mover. puck yeah. mover. Which I actually think is is better for this team in terms of what they need. Mm. Can he play with Quinn Hughes? Yeah, he can. 
absolutely. If if you if you wanted them to play together, absolutely because Heronic has versatility to his offensive game. It's not just that he has a wicked shot. It's not as if he's just going to cannibalize all of the offense and in the attacking zone that he's going to be taking puck touches away from Hughes. He knows how to play off of guys. He knows how to walk the line. He can move east-west. He's got smart instincts, right? I saw many plays where he knows he has a has a shot that opposing players and goaltenders freeze. And so he'll use the threat of that shot to set other players up. Like, he's smart in that sense. He had a lot of pinches in the offensive zone to keep plays alive. Hughes doesn't have that type of offensive partner ever to play with. So I think mm. he'll like that aspect. Not to mention that he's not a defensive liability, at least in terms of what I saw of his shifts this season, to where you'd be thinking, oh, can you trust them enough defensively, right? Like, if you Although wanted we them. we know that this is his best two-way season. It is, yeah. So, yeah. How do you evaluate whether or not it's best for the team to have him play with Hughes or to help raise the floor of the minutes that Hughes has not been on the ice in which this team has just struggled mightily? Yeah, well, with OEL Myers, right? Mm. That's been such a big story of the teams, why they took a step forward, especially under Boudreaux last season as a 5-on-5 five five team where I believe, I, I can't say with certainty, but I think they were slightly positive goal differential at 5-on-5. Five five. I think, obviously, a big part of that was Demko playing lights out, but the other part of it, too, was OEL Myers as a matchup pair. Mm-hmm. going up against the opposition's best lines were break-even, essentially, in terms of shots and scoring chances. like And goals. And, and goals. Yeah. Like, that's huge. And you go from that level of competence, that level of help. Yeah, they were the sneaky heroes of the Bruce There It Is run. Yeah. They truly were. Like, I know everyone talked about Miller and Chase on and on and on. And, and rightly so. But, like, a, a, a matchup pair that comes out even when you have Quinn Hughes on your team, is, is you know, super high value. Right. And so you go ahead to this season. They've been, they were disastrous, right? So in my opinion, raising the floor of that second pair to at least a competent level has to be a higher priority, even though I'd love to see what they could cook together, simply because Hughes is, you know, he's already a 55, almost 60% goal share type of guy at 5-5 at, uh, five five this season, I think you gain more from shoring up that second pair and ensuring that at least one of those guys is always on the ice. The only, like, you'd need to acquire another high-end top four guy for me to be like, you can afford to, ha- like, a- afford to, to load, load the top pair up. Mm. Otherwise, I think you want to maximize the minutes that at least one of Hughes or Hironic is on the ice. We'll talk more about the Canucks defense, but we're about to go to break, and I want to give our listeners a chance to ask me or to ask you anything. In fact, I was thinking, why don't you ask questions that are debate topics? If, uh, it, 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 you know, ask ask Durant's anything either on Twitter at, at Sportsnet650 or into the 650-650 Dunbar Lumber text line. And, and what I really want is mention some things you want us to talk about, and we'll pick a few of the best ones and use them as debate topics. Bert will be it resolved. We'll come up with uh, we'll debate topics. And Harmon and I, toe-to-toe in the final segment, we'll debate whatever it is Canucks Talks listeners suggest. And, and of course, 
whatever they suggest that Lena decides or dines to pick. All right, we'll be back and we'll debate on the final segment today of Canucks Talk on Sportsnet 650. Hello and welcome back to Canucks Talk. Final segment today with Thomas Drance, your host, me, and Harmon Dial. My colleague at The Athletic and your guest host. Thanks for sitting in with me, bud. Of course, man. Always a pleasure to spend two hours doing what we do every day anyway. But for an audience. Yeah. <laughs> we haven't we haven't agreed very much, though. Usually we agree on everything. So. Yeah. Uh, well. The listeners will just have to take my word for the hive mind thing because we have not quite delivered. <laughs> uh, just a reminder, Connects Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. They're your Kubota All-Star team. Visit avenuemachinery.ca for more intel or douglaslakeequipment.com. And, of course, we are coming to you live from the Kintex studio. Before the break, I invited you all to submit your questions slash debate topics to the 650-650 Dunbar Lumber text line. Nailed it. Lena, do we have any good debate topic submissions for Harmon and I? Do we want to stick I? to Canucks or ask anything? Oh. Because there's there's a few. Are there ask anything debate topics? Um, McDonald's <laughs> or Tim Horton's coffee? Oh, perfect. Yeah. I'm ready to go. I don't drink coffee. Oh, my gosh. Okay, well. <laughs> I, forgot, I forgot that Harmon is I'm deeply weird. healthy. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Next. Um, okay, next one. What is your pick for the greatest movie of all time? Ooh. Cast, plot, cinematography. For me, it's got to be Snatch or The Departed. That's Daniel wow. and Campbell. Okay, I like I like both of those answers. I'm going to defer to Harmon Dial, who's not much of a movie guy based <laughs> on our conversations. So you'll go first, and then I'll I'll come in. I'm the worst. Like you're asking the wrong guy. I, I don't I know. watch movies. That's why at it's all. fun. Well, I mean, my, uh, <laughs> I shouldn't, I was about to say like, cause my favorite movie is You're the Wolf s- of Wall Street, but like, that's not, that's like, totally fine. I saw the that's Wolf not of, like a piece of art. You know what I mean? I saw the Wolf of Wall Street in theaters with my father-in-law when I was relatively new to dating my, my wife, my now wife, um, maybe, maybe it'd been like 18 months and I don't think we'd ever been to a film together. And I remember I'm sitting there in the theater, and obviously it's, like, right off the bat, there's, like, all this terribly inappropriate stuff going (laughs) on, right? And I'm just like, oh, my God, this is a nightmare. And uh, I don't remember exactly what happened, but it was, like, one of the most ribald jokes in the first 10 minutes. And I just hear him go, like, ah, ha, 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 he's (laughs) laughing so hard. And I was just like, oh, I'm totally fine. Totally fine. Uh, another, Another bit of ephemera from that evening. I get into the car after seeing that movie in the theaters, which was what? The tail end of 2014, spring of 2014. I check my phone and I'm like, John Tortorella tried to fight who? <laughs> so that was the evening, the the evening in question. My my okay. I have a I have a secret thing that I do every quarter, once every 3 months. I watch The Hunt for Red October. And I love it. I love it every time. The Hunt for Red October is my all-time favorite film. I watch it four times a year. I've never watched it. It's fabulous. It's got Sean Connery. It's got Sam Neill with a really bad Russian accent. He says the word Montana exactly like that. It's got Tim Curry. 
It's got Alec Baldwin. It's got uh, James Earl Jones. It's incredible. Great cast. Great score. Great story. Cold War spy fiction. Deeply into it. All right, Lena, what else we got? Just before we move over from the movie topics, mm-hmm. uh, someone did text in earlier about you uh, 2 as a duo, and it reminds them of the movie Twins with Danny DeVito <laughs> and Arnold Schwarzenegger. That makes sense. I'm definitely Danny DeVito in this, despite my height. <laughs> but it's also because I'm the garbage man. I haven't wa- again. I haven't watched that movie, so I don't get the reference. <laughs> yeah, I had to read the plot, and it's it's pretty interesting. You also um, had to read the plot, Lena. Yes, I didn't even know it existed. Wow. It's from 1988, Dran. Okay, Come on. Kindergarten Cop. Anybody? Oh yes, yeah, yeah. I remember that one. <laughs> I, I was expecting some like buddy cop sort of thing. Like I thought someone was gonna say like Twenty One Jump Street or something, and then and then I would have been like, ah, I get the reference. Like twins. <laughs> I don't know. Fair. <laughs> Um, Okay, so lots of people are texting in asking about now that the Canucks have kind of really committed to this whole retool, Mm -hmm. uh, what's the best case scenario for this offseason that's within the realm of reality? Okay. Harmon, why don't we, we, instead of debating, why don't we go a list of priorities? One, two, three, four, five. What's our perfect offseason look like for a retooling Canucks? Right, so... You start. At least one more legit top four defenseman for me because one takeaway I had from watching Hronik is he's a really well-rounded defenseman and he's going to have a huge impact on this blue line, but don't expect to have an anchor next to him necessarily and and expect that he'll be able to do it all by himself. Like He needs help. Put him in a position to to succeed, Um, even if it's having a guy who... then Then you have options, right? You can even stack Hughes and Hronik together if you want. So I think that has to be number one. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna twist this game now that you okay. said this. Okay, so what we're gonna do is you're gonna we're, you're gonna do the five priorities, and every time you do, you're gonna kick it over to me, and I'm going to give you the limitations. Okay, like y- you say that, and then okay, I'm going yeah. to bring the reality. So okay. you talk about the hockey needs, and I'll bring the reality yeah. of the situation. In adding another top four defenseman. Okay. The Canucks need to make sure that the guy is under the age of 27. You yeah. can't go out and get Brian Dumoulin or whatever guy played for the Pittsburgh Penguins who's clearly breaking down and be like, job done, character added. You need to get someone who's a fit for many, multiple years to come. And you need to get them without parting with your first round pick. Okay, And you need to get them without committing the sort of dollars that a free agent tends to demand right like you need to find a guy who's like two and a half because ethan bear is going to cost you two and a half to three right and you're the most capped out team in hockey so it's got to be like a relatively affordable guy frankly it's got to be a bargain bin guy or a guy that you've managed to land in a trade with a with a less efficient contract going out like those are the only two options in my view for how to do it in a sustainable way. Yeah. So, so you may be hearing us sort of back on the Brett Kulak beating that yeah. sort of drum. Well, like that, totally. That's, that's sort right. Of... That's right. Like one of those one of those guys who've signed in the depressed market of late. Their team is in cap issues. They need to he's got more value to you than these they've than he's got for them. Maybe you take another bad contract forward back and and that's who you're trading Besser or whomever to. Like that's that's sort of the parameters. Like, I think it's got to be an imperfect solution who's probably on a on a tough ticket 
so that you're able to sort of do a, a almost cash neutral hockey deal. That's that's going to be the only sustainable way to a do it. A priority too with that defender has to be he needs to be high end defensively. Mm. Like like especially on the penalty kill where one of the really underrated parts of losing Edler and Tanev, right? Just because it's hard to evaluate PK impact sometimes is losing what they brought to the table shorthanded. Right. And, and OEL and Myers just haven't been able to do that. Hughes is an excellent defenseman. He's not necessarily an elite penalty killer. So somebody who can help in that department, right? Because as the 32nd penalty kill, that's an area where the Canucks last offseason, right? They figured that by bringing Lazar and Mikheyev in, that by fixing the forward combinations that you could sort of rejig the penalty kill hasn't worked, right? So clearly you need to help on the back end, especially because of all the cross-seam and, and backdoor plays that the penalty kill has surrendered. So um, hopefully someone with more of a defensive identity. Yeah, and, you know, I, yeah, I think in, in so doing too, you've got to be mindful of managing what's next with Myers and OEL, right? Like defensive-minded defensemen are few and far between, right? Yeah. One of the reasons that the Edmonton Oilers got Matthias Ekholm is he's one of like seven guys with that profile left in the league, Yeah. right? There's just not a lot of defensive-minded guys who can skate well enough to actually defend with the way the contemporary game is played, right? Chris Tanev's a unicorn. Um, Matthias Ekholm's a unicorn. Like, there are not many of these beasts roaming the land. And so, in carving out the space for a defensive-minded guy, I think one thing this team needs to be really mindful of is managing the sort of down-ticket pain on clearing the money to do so. So, um, an OEL buyout is an easy solution that a lot of people are talking about, but it's still a painful one. Like, there are real ramifications to making a decision like that. Um, a Myers trade, you might have to, even even with the bonus paid out, you might have to attach an asset to it to, to effectively borrow $6 million worth of space from a team. And I don't remember if his trade protections I still change. think it's active. I, it, still, I don't think it's changed. I don't think, at least according so, to Cap Friendly. So it's not like you're going to be able to use the um, Bill Armstrong laundromat down in, uh, <laughs> down in Tempe. Yeah. So... It's it's going to be a really tricky balancing act to to carve out the space for these two defensemen we're talking about or the defensive minded defensemen we're talking about without like significantly harming this club's other options. Yeah, beyond that, middle six center. Again, somebody hopefully with a two A sort of profile. Good luck. That's all. I've, like, yeah, it's, these guys. It's not easy, but it's these what guys you don't need, move right. Like Sheldon Dries was. Your third has been your third line center for large chunks of this season. Are you willing to pay JT Comfers five and a half million times five? I, I I would not want to sign that contract. That's the thing, right? I ideally not because he's off a career year. Oscar Sunkvist is he good enough? P- yes, but potentially considering like if I like I'd rather have at three and a half million times four. <sighs> okay, then. No, I mean that's a lot. Is it? For Oscar Sunkfist, considering he's probably the second best sub thirty center available, Alex Kerfoot, four times five. Oh, jeez, I don't like these contracts. But I mean, yeah, I know. Like, it's... look at look at Andrew Kopp. Yeah. Like I don't I don't even think these are like outrageous. Yeah, they're not. It's just kind of market valuations. Value. Yeah. Now it's and uh... and who are you getting in a trade? 
Jason Dickinson. <laughs> wow. I'm joking, I'm joking. I mean, I think I think fixing the center thing is um I mean, it's possible, but that's you at least that's that's a tough one. Yeah, it is tough, but in an ideal world, even if even if Miller continues struggling, right? You at least want to have the option of being able to put him on the wing. Oh man. Like they've done this season. If you're right? able to move him on the wing, if you're able to find like a durable answer so that you can move JT Miller on the on the onto the wing. And it's not that he's like I've long thought that he shouldn't play center. And I still believe that. But he's definitely okay there. Like, he can survive there yeah. so long as he's not in a matchup role. Although, even there, Rick Talk has sort of ramped up his matchup minutes again now yeah. that he's, like, playing a little bit more defensively, and he's held up. Yeah. It's not producing, but he's held up. But if you can play him on the wing full-time, then you've got, a, like, an, a, an elite piece. It, I mean, it's a big gap. It's like, he's a fine middle six center, or he's an elite piece on the wing. They have to find a way to make him an elite piece, in my view, considering, unless they trade him. But considering the commitment, the investment they've made, he needs to be put in his best position to succeed. All right, what's next? Somebody, I don't know, just, I don't know the exact position to target yet, but you gotta you gotta help shore up the penalty kill. Like, I, I know it's improved recently, but I don't think this personnel is going to get it done. Yeah, so just more defensive-minded personnel. Yeah. It's so and hard whether that's with the center, whether this was the defenseman, like you need guys to check off that box. Yeah, and I wonder, I wonder if that's partially something you can get. You know, like, um, like I think about a Fogel in yeah. Edmonton, who's like he'd be a good fit for that, and he's probably viewed by them as inefficient. Yeah, right. Uh, Colton Sissons, like if Nashville's rebuilding, yeah, does Colton Sissons shake loose? Yeah. And is there, considering the term on that deal, would there be a fit where they'd take a guy like a, a Besser or a Garland, like a guy that they think they can juke his value and, and move him on again? Yeah. Um, you know, th- those would be the sorts of guys that I'd be looking for there. But, man, it's it's so tough. It's so tough. Like, I think – I think so is there anything else? Yeah, Cl- I think just generally – stuff, anything like that? Yeah, yeah. So I think generally in accomplishing some of these things, you're going to have to reallocate – at least the money off of uh, uh, one of Besser or Garland. At least. Like, one of those guys, especially because they, they're they both offensive-minded wingers, right? Like, they're not going to... Garland helps drive two-way results at 5-5, five and five, but he's not, he's not a defensive guy, right? We know that Besser has been up and down in his career in terms of the two-way value he adds. Definitely doesn't kill penalties. I, I'm sure management looks at that and goes, that's a lot of money tied up into wingers that... Don't do a whole lot besides mm-hmm. putting up points, and they're not doing that at a, at a high enough rate right now to justify their cap hits in their in their view. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I legitimately think you're going to have to attach an asset on either of those guys. So, I'm going to say, don't attach too good an asset. Like you have to find you. You're better off finding a hockey deal. You're better off finding a, a, a Kulak type a Fogel type, a, a guy who's uh, who their team views as inefficient, um, but who you might view as a better fit for you for what you need. You have to find hockey trades, I think. I, I don't think it's going to be as easy as shedding the salary. Yeah, You're probably going to be looking for dollar-in, dollar-out type deals, which are so, so difficult to do. Yeah. And even then, I think you're probably going to be looking at sweetening them. So... You know, don't don't under don't don't sell low on Niels Hoaglander. 
don't don't do something silly. Yeah. Just like you, you have to be really careful not to make a mistake now that you're feeling the competitive pressure. Yeah. Now that you're launching a, re- a retooling project that everyone in the entire sport, forget your own market, everyone in the entire industry thinks is wild. Yeah. A, a ridiculous decision. You're really going to have to be careful about not getting taken advantage of. Yeah. Because everyone knows what you need to do. Everyone knows how capped out you are. Everyone knows how desperate this team is. So it's a really tough market to maneuver in. The other big party, I think, has to be one of OEL or Myers has to be off the books for next season. Oh, yeah. I'd say both. Yeah. I honestly think what we're seeing now suggests that this – that it's honestly, I think it's – we've unfortunately reached a point where it's addition by subtraction and it's probably worth spending some assets, whether it's in the form of future cap space and a buyout or – attaching a pick to get off of Myers like I think we're at the point where um if this team wants to make the playoffs next year they're far better off with a clean slate yeah than with either player on the team it's catastrophic it's catastrophic all right big picture takeaway from this exercise it's they're going the Canucks will have to be mindful of how much sort of pain they they're willing to accept in terms of future dead cap space, whether it's with an OEL buyout or future like assets that they attach in order to carve the flexibility they need to make upgrades. See, and and I would, I would sort of take it one step further, which is like, if you go through this exercise and think about what it's going to take to finish this roster, you can like the Hronik deal if you want. But when you think about what it implies, when you think about the path required to then build a playoff caliber team around him and the rest of these players, the probability of it working is too low, and the pain tolerance, like, the required should exceed any reasonable threshold. Like, this is why it's a bad plan. It's not that it's unworkable. It's that the costs associated with even finishing the project are far too high for a path to the playoffs that is, like, far from guaranteed. Right? Yeah. Rebuilding's no guarantee of the cup! Retooling is a guaranteed way to make the path forward longer in my view anyway lena what's well let's go let's go a couple more before we uh, sign off I, I know we took a lot of time on that exercise but it's a it's a fun one that's okay okay i'll um there's a lot of similar questions so it's all good um question for the hive mind this is from dan saying, is there anything that you would trade the canucks unprotected first this season ahead of the lottery and then i'll flip it to the next question of, of what other people are asking if the Canucks were to land on pick between six to eight, who would you guys pick? Okay, so I would not trade the pick unprotected ahead of the lottery for anything at all. There's yeah. nothing I would trade for. Same. Because, I mean, Bedard's the type of player where all of my takes, all of my takes go out the window if the Canucks win the draft lottery. All of my, like, they're a long way away. It's like you add a Bedard caliber player to a Hughes, Pedersen, Demko core and i'm like winning time it's now yeah right like it changes everything but art changes everything but art probably gets a new building built in this city like what are we talking about i don't care if i have a half a percent chance at that until it's locked in that i'm not getting him i'm not trading that chip yeah period well even just big picture 
like let's let's extend this and say <laughs> I have this idea now of like the lottery results win uh, or the res- lottery results are in the Canucks win and I'm like throwing my takes out the window just like uh, <laughs> just like Henry Sugar in uh, the Royal Doll novels yeah the other part of it too is if you're talking about the conversation of the pick after the lottery and you have the certainty they should still hold hold on to it because even with this core. You look at the best teams. Yeah, they don't have enough elite talent. They don't have enough elite, elite talent, right? No, no. it's like the embarrassment it, of riches. Like, what's it's such a frustrating part of this is that, like, among their issues are they're also just like, even the the core that they trot out, or like Alvin was like just like naming the core repeatedly during his press, and it's like that's average. It's average. That's the thing. Like, this isn't the NBA where you have like two or three great pieces Seriously. and it's like that's enough right like steven samkos was what at the time when tampa won the cup their fourth best player yeah like behind vasilevsky had been kucherov and point and like yeah fifth so it's like that tells you how much sort of star talent you often need to push ahead so that well, draft and, pick and like, is your I best think, shot at it. i think there's a chance you could put cernak and Sergeyev above him too like in terms of importance to the team I wouldn't put Chernak or Sergeyev. I le- I think there's at least an argument. I mean, they won their first cup without him. Basically, he played one period. Yeah, he literally played one period and he scored, and it was super cool. But, um, so they should keep that pick because it's your best shot yeah. at landing an elite talent. You're not going to find, you're not going to trade or sign an elite talent unless you. Uh, super fair. Miracle. And what was the other question? The other question was, oh, six to eight draft range. Who do you like? Mm-hmm. I, I like Benson. It's Benson. Like it's Zach Benson. If he's available at six to eight and you pass him, you're I pass on him, you're making a huge, huge mistake. Zach Benson. Yeah. I think if you pass on him at five, you're making a huge mistake. Truly, like I I think if you pass on him at four, you're making a huge mistake. There's only three guys I like more. You hearing some Leo Carlson. Could pass Adam Fentilli buzz in the industry, by the way. Really? I haven't checked in on it. I will, though, because I'm surprised to hear that. Uh, hearing a little bit of it. Starting to hear some Leo Carlson could go second buzz. Really? Yeah. I like Carlson a lot, but I don't know what to... There, there's people There's people out there that think he could be like the next big elite two-way center. What are your thoughts on Michkov in terms of because of his contract status? Does that I'm all aboard and the Russia risk like I'm all aboard. I think the I I have a take that the fact that it takes him time to come over is a feature, not a bug, because instead of signing the ELC and then getting like the year 18 season where the player isn't quite elite yet and the year 19 season where, you know, they put up empty calorie points, but don't really help you win. Yeah. And then finally you get that one year and then they're nine million dollar player the next year like i like the idea that a guy spends three years over in russia and comes over at 21 and you get his age 21 and 22 seasons and it's like boom like we've seen with kuzmenko it's not like he's gonna arrive at 21 and be like an 18 year old coming into the league he's gonna be a guy who's played 200 pro games and been one of the khl's leading scorers and on and on and he'll be ready to hit the ground running for you know uh 950k plus bonuses like beautiful i love that Especially for a team that's a couple years away, in my view. Yeah. I'm hearing uh, a lot of concern in the industry that it's not as simple as it being three years. I think there's a lot of teams that are scared to an extreme extent of selecting Mitchkov 
for a variety of reasons, with the Russian factor being sort of the primary one among them, but not the only one. And that's sort of got me a little bit cool. I I I I think Benson should go ahead of Mitchkov at this point. Yeah, personally. All right, we're uh, we're gonna wrap it up there with a thank you to Harmon Dial for joining us. That was a fun exercise, by the way. I liked the um, dose of reality versus the hockey needs structure of yeah. uh, of that. We didn't quite have the debate, but we uh, we collabed nonetheless on the air. The hive mind at work. Guest hosting Canucks Talk. Thank you for joining us. Oh, what do you got to plug? Anything uh, Anything good coming up at The Athletic here? Uh, there's always good stuff. You got there's a, too you, much good stuff. You've got a Pod I, Colson feature coming? Uh, yeah, I do, actually. I'm excited for I that. Have to, th- th- you remember what I'm working on better than I remember because my recall memory is trash. That's the high mind thing. But Exactly, exactly. That Again, a feature, bu- a feature, not a bug. But yeah, Pod Colson feature coming soon. We'll look forward to reading it. This is Canucks Hour, Sportsnet 650.